Hey, um, we're going to continue our series of looking at Paul's prayers, and this morning we're continuing on from last week. I hope I didn't listen to it. Um, at looking at Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter one, I think there was another fellow called Richie who did the job. I hope he was good. Um, one of the things that you have to remember about this letter to the Ephesians is that unlike Paul's other letters, um, it, or sorry, it is unlike Paul's other letters because he is not writing to counter a specific problem. Or at the very least, if there is a problem, it's not a major controlling factor in um, what he decides to write to them. But rather, he seems motivated by uh, to write a general letter of encouragement and instruction to these people in Ephesus, and, and actually maybe to some other people as well, because most people think the letter is a, a circular. But anyway, what that means for us today is that unlike all of the other of Paul's prayers uh, that we've been looking at, we have an example here of Paul giving us a picture of what it is he prays for Christians that are under his care when that prayer is not driven by specific needs. So this is the everyday prayer of Paul for Christians. This is the prayer that if you were to ask him, Hey Paul, I want to pray for my family, or my friends, or my church, or my congregation, denomination. What should I pray? And he would say, if you asked him that question, he would say something along the lines of what we see here in Ephesians chapter 1. So this prayer then is Paul's standard, that he prays for Christians every time he remembers them, apart from, you know, when something comes up, something specific. And as such then, this must also be our standard for Christians, including, I might add, anybody who's baptized that has wandered off from the church. We all got lots of those people in our lives, right? Because if this prayer, as you will see, would come true in their life, they'd be back tomorrow morning. So what is it he prays anyway? Well, um, let me say, I'm going to jump in there to verse 17. And uh, if you start, see, look at the start of there, we see that he asked God that he would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I might add that the NIV actually is a little bit different here. It says, so that you may know him better. More to the more literal translations say, um, I ask that you may give me the spirit, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, sorry, in the knowledge of him which is important to know, considering I'm basing quite a lot of my sermon on it. But uh, this is what most of the trans, uh, translations use. So, he asked Paul, right? He says, um, or Paul asks, that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What's that? What does that mean? Well, for starters, he talks about knowledge of him. Him is God. So it's knowledge about God. And this is, you can call it what you will, call it doctrine, call it biblical knowledge, God's counsel, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it is true facts that the Bible um, confirms about the Lord. Now that might sound very dry and uh, uh, maybe even boring or foreboding to you. As if Paul is trying to make a a dry intellectual request of the Spirit here. But he's not, you see. Because our doctrine is a brain thing. You've got to think about this stuff. 
And although wisdom and revelation are both categories that relate to knowledge, what he is asking for us is not just knowledge on its own. It's not just an intellectual exercise. And we know that. Well, how do we know that? Because he characterizes the effect of his prayer in the next verse, verse 18, as what happens here, as having the eyes of your heart opened. No. You see, the heart in those days had a different meaning to what the way we take it these days. You see, you'll hear people today say, I've said it myself, the heart wants what the heart wants. And they mean that they just made a decision that could be perceived as somewhat irrational, but that doesn't matter because it was in line with um, their feelings or emotions. Or another example is uh, when people use the heart to refer to their deep desires, the kind of desires that reflect who they really are. Yeah? And you know, you'll hear people say things like, I knew in my heart I had to do this. And in this case, people are making a decision based on their feelings or a kind of an unconscious understanding of who they consider themselves to be, as opposed to a string of logic that could be written up on a piece of paper. Now, I'm not making a judgment about either of those ways of making decisions. But I do want you to see that in both examples, people are using heart as a metaphor for the feelings and emotions and desires that make up the true self. In other words, your heart is the center of who you are, and it's made up of these feelings that are tangible but not quite explainable. But that's not what Paul's on about here. When Paul is talking about here, he uses the word, he is kind of using it in a sense like true self. Because for Paul, the heart refers to the place where all that makes up who you are is located. It's not just your feelings and emotions and desires. It's those things and your mind. It's those things and rational thought. It's those things and your ability to logically work through what you hear and read. So to bring it all together then, when he says he wants the eyes of our heart opened, he is asking for a knowledge that changes what you think. So it is new knowledge. And it changes, at times anyway, how you feel. This is intellectually and existentially satisfying kind of knowledge. So when we hear Paul pray for wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, know that although he is indicating that we we do need a, a sound base of doctrine, uh, of knowledge of God. This prayer is not just a request for the Holy Spirit to download a whole heap of information into your head. And this becomes obvious when we look at uh, the two things that he's talking about here, wisdom and revelation. Firstly, wisdom. Wisdom, what is it? Well, it's that what, what makes you able to make good decisions when faced with the complexities of life. You know, very few things are black and white, right? But the wiser you are, the better decisions you'll make. And wisdom in in the knowledge of God, then, has been able to tell two things. One, what is good, what is bad, what is true, and what is false. And then, being able to take all that information and know what to do with it. That's been wise. This thing is like filling your head with the good stuff of God and being able to um, then have a life that's full of good decisions, hopefully. The next part, Revelation, 
refers strictly speaking to, well, it refers to um, the first thing, sorry, Revelation refers to uh, that first time when the curtains uh, were pulled back in your soul, so to speak, and you understood something of who God is, something of who Jesus is, and the gospel had its first impact on your lives. But it also refers to ongoing revelation about the very same things. In other words, to deeper and deeper understanding of the things of God. Now you might have heard a saying that the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life. It's the A to Z or Z. I've been Americanized. <laughs> By that what they mean is it's not just something for the beginning of your lives. It's something for every day of your life. The main truths that we learned when we became Christians, these are the most important ones. And throughout our lives we will gain better and better and better and deeper and deeper understanding of these very same things. We'll gain more insight into them. I read once of a story of a man who he wanted to write a book based on how well known, how well known Christians answered the question of uh, what do you think of Jesus? And he went to this guy and he asked him the question and the guy said nothing and then in a, in a few moments later he just started crying. Now, I know, I'm hoping, that all of you have heard that Jesus loves you. He does. But are you at a place in your understanding of what that means that on some occasions when you are contemplating his love for you, you are moved to tears? I know I'm not. Now look, I'm not trying to make a rule. It's not about crying. Some of us are more prone to that. Cry to drop a hat. The point is that it's possible for the truths that we were taught at the start of our Christian walks to become more meaning and full and more precious to us. Overall then, Paul is asking the Spirit to give us a knowledge that is based on the doctrines that the Bible teaches that is both intellectually and emotionally satisfying, that helps us navigate life, that never loses the ability to teach us something new. I mean, who wouldn't want a piece of that? So pray for it. You stick that one sentence, it's verse 17, up on the wall or the fridge or in your wallet. I got a piece of paper and salitated it to death the other day and I'm going to carry it around with me forever. You pray that for yourself. Pray at your family, your friends, the church, the denomination, Christian community, whoever you feel needs it. And if anything happens, you come back and tell me what happened. But we're not finished yet. We know, well, we're not finished yet because there's a heap of more sentences, but we know that Paul wants us to get this kind of knowledge we've been talking about for the last few minutes. He wants to, I mean, of course he wants it. He just prayed it for us. This knowledge which has so many different aspects to it and affects us in so many different ways. But Paul specifically wants us to gain knowledge or to be enlightened in three areas. And they are the hope of our calling, the glory of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. Now, you'll notice that Paul doesn't spend any time explaining the first two and only a sentence or two on the third one. And I think the reason for that is that he's hoping the prayer will be answered. And uh, he's simply trusting that it will. But I will spend a little more, bit more time than he does. And as we go to, through them, you 
uh, you'll see that these three things that he asked for us goes along with the pattern that I've been talking about earlier as this being a general prayer for Christians. Because these three things effectively encompass everything a Christian would need. If you can't see what I'm talking about now, you, you will very soon because the first one covers our whole lives. He prays for the hope of our calling. And our calling is our life. A new way of life. Or one that every single day correctly acknowledges the true spiritual reality of the universe and lives accordingly. That is our calling. And it covers everything that God has asked us to do and be since we became Christians. And as such, you know, there's, there's a thousand and one different aspects to it. Um, but what is the hope of that calling then? What's the hope inherent in when you're called to witness to your neighbor? Or the hope inherent in having to, to suffer as a Christian? Or the hope inherent in trying to do good for your family or your friends or, or, or your community or whoever? What, what is the hope there? And there are so many different ways that we experience it. It could be, it could be joy, warmth, uh, expectation, purposefulness, meaningfulness, fulfillment, fellowship, crack. But these positive feelings, these positive things come when they do come in different forms and at different times. And of course at times they are abundantly clear and there's times of great fellowship, great joy, etc. But other times the positive parts are so small you'd hardly know they were there. But that's the hope of our calling. And it encompasses all of our Christian life and all of the positive parts in it. The second thing then, he says that he wants us to know, that he prays that we'd have wisdom and revelation in, is the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, what's he referring to here is, I understand, as all the things that are promised to us when we get to heaven. The other side of life. Death is our inheritance. Now, you might think, as I did, certainly, before I looked at this passage and did some reading around it, that we don't know too much about heaven in the world to come and what it's like but actually the New Testament has got a good bit in there and tells us a few things at least tells us that in heaven uh, we'll finally see God and that this vision will transform us and give us new bodies just like Jesus' new body and that many, 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 many of us from all over the world and all tribes around the world and all parts of history will worship together and not only that, but we'll finally enjoy perfect fellowship with everybody. And you know, as I was thinking about this, it struck me that it's ironic that one of the things about the Western world in the last 50 years is that we have become an increasingly individualistic society and yet at the same time we also crave community. It's like cocaine. People love it. People want to be in a place where they are known and accepted without judgment. Where they can be at peace with their neighbor and share a common vision of purpose. That place that they're looking for is called heaven. And we've been promised it. Now for sure there's a, there's, you know, there's a, there's a taste of that kind of community. Um, that kind of shared purpose. Even that kind of transformed lives in our churches. 
but it's not the same as what has been promised to us. Now there is a danger here, I suppose, that you might think that Paul is asking us to, you know, just stare at the sky and wait for the end. But he hasn't called us to be spacers. He has said instead, and actually I'm sure you've heard the phrase that he was so heavenly minded he was of no earthly use. Did we hear that? And that's true, that can happen, but that's not really what Paul is trying to get at here. What he's saying is that there is a real comfort and a real encouragement to be had by understanding what there is to be understood about the life to come. And then lastly, the last one, very simple actually, and basically as he says in verse 19, he wants us to know this incomparably great power for us who believe. Simply put, he wants us to know the power of God. That power that is for you is the same power that defeated death and the same power that had the right and the ability to put Christ in charge of everything, everywhere, now and always. That is the power that we have access to. And that is the power that Paul prays you understand. And not just understand how, how powerful it is, but understand that it is for you. Now, I have a lot of uh, charismatic friends who make a big deal out of the, the phrase, the power of God. And sometimes I do wonder if they have something that we don't. But I don't think that knowing the power of God more deeply is about trusting him to be able to do miraculous things through us. I think rather that knowing the power of God is simply being able to trust him at all. Because most of us, you see, um, we will live lives that are rather ordinary. We won't be asking mountains or telling mountains to get up and move. We live very ordinary lives full of fears and problems and we will need to know the power of God simply to be able to do the very simple things that he asks us to do every day. That's trusting. Now ironically, that's it, but ironically, I've spent more time on the two things that he spent little time on and a little time on the one thing that he spent more time on, but I'm going to draw it together anyway, and by now you can probably see clearly what I meant when I said that this prayer covered everything. Because effectively what he's done here is he has asked that we gain wisdom and knowledge specifically in three areas which are all of our lives before we die, life after death, and the power to get you from one to the other. That's pretty right range, ranging, wouldn't you think? But, but, there is one thing that he hasn't mentioned. Well, I suppose it's not that he hasn't mentioned it, it's more that... Um, it's more surprising that in a letter like this we haven't seen it. You see, think about it, right? This is a letter to an entire congregation. How many people we got here? 200? Something like that. An entire congregation. Who knows how big Ephesus was, right? And this is a prayer that covers everything, everything they need, yeah? And yet he hasn't mentioned any problems. Now I'm sure, you know, if you take any group of people, if you take today, this group right here, there will be some of you doing not too good. 
It could be serious. It could be only for a season. It could, it could end before the end of the service. Maybe even by the end of the night. But there will always be someone struggling. So why doesn't he make some sort of mention for those who are finding it hard to believe today? Why doesn't he uh, talk about those who have recently undergone a tragedy and everything seems very dark? Is Paul being Pollyannish here? Did you ever hear that word? I learned it last week. It's great. <laughs> it's where someone is always happy no matter what's going on. No matter what happens, everything is good. Even bad things are good things in disguise. And you could almost accuse, you could almost accuse Paul of doing that here. It's as if he was saying, look lads, it's okay, sure, we're all going to heaven anyway. And if bad things happen in your day, well, look, there's joy tomorrow. My mother-in-law, he's not saying that. My mother-in-law has a story where when her grandfather died, <clears throat> her mother was at the funeral. So my mother-in-law's mother was at the funeral of her father. And she was in bits. And all these people came up to her. Christians, this is in America, Christians came up to her and uh, to say a few words. And most of the words went along the lines of, Oh, June, June was her name, um, you'll see him again soon, he's in a better place. Now, and then one guy who she, knew, who she worked with and wasn't a Christian came up to her and said, Oh, June, it's a damn shame. He was a fine guy. And that was what she needed to hear. Not, it's not that the other things weren't true. And look, of course, I'm not saying that when people are discouraged or when bad things happen, we don't pe- tell people Christian truths. Of course there's a place for that, especially if they ask for it. I'm not saying that Paul's answering to suffering is always sunshine and sunflowers. Of course he wasn't. The point is that when we get discouraged, when we do suffer tragedies... What we need is the presence of friends, family, the prayers for strength and comfort, the appropriate words, the practical help, and this is the point I'm trying to get at. We need that little voice at the back of our head that does say the truths that we don't want to hear right then, but we need to know them all the same. It doesn't have to be the first voice, it doesn't have to be the loudest voice, but there has to be a small voice telling us that we will. We will, see, we will see them again. This is not the end. There are better times. I still remember a few years ago, actually it was only three years ago, I got into really big trouble at work, like massive trouble. And uh, it was all my fault. I mean, yeah, it was all my fault. And I remember getting a phone call where somebody laid out for me the effects of my actions. And it was, it was horrible. But I also remember that as they were talking, I realized two things instantaneously. Very small voice at the back of my head. The first was that my life was going to be misery for a couple of months. And it was. And the second thing, and I remember thinking, and I remember exactly where I was when I taught it. There's a small pad outside the front of our house. That this will go away eventually. And I will learn from this and I'll be better because of it. No. Let me tell you that the great majority of my thinking for the next couple of months was not, this will be over soon. The great majority of my thinking for the next couple of months after that was, ah, what have I done? 
But I still needed to know that it would be good again. It would be good again. That's what got me through it. And the reason that I was able to think that and trust that it was true was all the work that God had done in me previous to when it happened. So you see, this prayer of Paul becomes very important all of a sudden. This should be our bread and butter prayer. Our everyday prayer. So that these essential truths and our ability to handle them get driven down deep into us. They become a well from which we can drink when we are dry. So, um, you know, sorry, not just a well that we can drink from when we are dry, but a foundation to stand on when life gives you a good shaking. So seriously, get it out. Put it on a piece of paper or wherever. Stick it on the fridge. See it every day, pray it every day. That's it. Amen.